This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, John Crace watches a glitter-covered Keir Starmer get down to serious business with a game-changing speech. Dolly Parton on style, stardom and sexists. And could a Turkish hair transplant change one man's life? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, in a rammed conference hall, John Crace watches Keir Starmer's speech as it veers into territory seldom seen in British politics in recent years. Hope. Read by William Vanderpoy. All that was missing was the dry ice. Long before Keir Starmer was due to give his leader's speech, the conference hall was rammed. Even the standing room was oversubscribed. Keir could have sold out the arena two or three times over. Not so long ago, Labour had to beg its supporters to fill the seats. The vibe was almost rock and roll. But this was no mere entertainment. This was deadly serious. In the audience, bets were being placed on who might be called upon to introduce Starmer. Some thought we might get a video message from Barack Obama. Bono, possibly. An endorsement from Rupert Murdoch would also have gone down a storm sealed the next election. Best of all would have been Rishi Sunak himself. There's nothing more guaranteed to get the Labour vote out than an appearance from the Prime Minister. The more the country sees of him, the less they like him. Just one more push for what this country needs is a change of direction. In the event, it was left to Marie Tidball, the parliamentary candidate for Peniston and Stockbridge, to do the honours. She gave a brief, potted history of Keir, one which we can all now recite by heart, and left it at that. 
unlike at Rachel Reeve's speech the day before, where she was twice introduced as the next Chancellor. There was no presumption for Starmer. We all knew that this was the next Prime Minister, but we were under orders to keep it to ourselves. Need to know basis and all that. Cue pumping music. Lionheart. Fearless, apparently. Mm, me neither. Then on walked Starmer to his first standing ovation. By the end, I had long since lost count of them. But before he had opened his mouth, a man ran from the back of the stage to throw glitter all over the Labour leader, all the while mumbling something about proportional representation. It was all vaguely surreal. The paramilitary wing of the Electoral Reform Society, a lone agent sent out by Ed Davey, Will no one rid me of this troublesome first-past-the-post system? Keir looked momentarily confused, stunned even, as security guards dragged the protester away. He tried unsuccessfully to brush the glitter off his jacket before a woman stepped up on stage and got him to remove it. Weirdly, this seemed to free him up, gave him a chance to assert his control, his authority. He rolled up his sleeves and leaned forward on the lectern. Now he could channel his annoyance at the interruption, looking every bit the leader who was ready for business. This had been billed as a crunch speech, a last chance for Starmer to show the country the real him, what he stands for, what drives him, and to make the case for Labour before the next election. This was overkill, hyperbole. The reality is, we already pretty much know the real Starmer already. There is not much more to tell. A bright working-class boy who has done well, who supports Arsenal. Well, that might be a little dull, prosaic even. But we could all do with a bit more dull in our lives from our ruling class. We've had enough fun with Boris Johnson and Liz Truss to last a lifetime. It's also true that Labour will almost certainly win the election anyway. But Starmer was leaving nothing to chance. This was his moment to seize the initiative, to kick the Tories when they were down, to win over the doubters. And he didn't disappoint. Sure, the speech rambled a bit at times. They almost always do. Someone should tell politicians that an hour is always far too long. Cut, cut, cut. If it can't be said in 45 minutes, it isn't worth saying. But at its core, it made the important argument. It was well-constructed and hit home. Where Sunak's speech in Manchester had never been more than an increasingly desperate plea to be given another chance. He knew he had done nothing to deserve it, but he just wanted it anyway. He couldn't stand the personal failure. Starmer offered so much more. Not just intellectual depth, but emotional intelligence. He knew this was both all about him and nothing about him. He was the mere figurehead, a focal point. The country was what was really at stake. That was the prize. Time and again he spoke of service. All too often, Rishi thinks he's doing us a favour. After dispensing with the protester, this shows how much the party has changed. Starmer made a few well-aimed gags at the Tories' expense just to ease himself and the audience into the speech. But this really wasn't about the Conservatives. Hell, the whole country knew that they had failed, were a bad joke. 
this was about making the positive case for Labour. To not just rely on people voting against the Tories, rather to feel inspired to vote for something better. There was patriotism. There was support for Israel. Yet another standing ovation. A few years ago, the hall was full of Palestinian flags. Now, there were none. And there was the casual mention of a decade of renewal. Starmer isn't just counting on winning the next election. He's also banking on the one after that. Then came the announcements. Not so much well-defined policy as aspirational mission statements. An attack on nimbyism by building on bits of the grey belt. An idea stolen from under the Tories' noses. They will be kicking themselves. Full speed ahead on renewables. The climate crisis was an opportunity to be embraced, not to be shrunk from. A new reformed NHS. We were veering into territory seldom seen in British politics in recent years. Hope. Starmer was making Britain sound like a place where you might want to live, not just survive. The applause was ecstatic. For Sunak last week, it had merely been grudging. Not all politicians were liars, he said. Some, like Rishi, were just hopelessly out of touch. Their lived experience was not ours, but Starmer's was. He knew what it was like to go without, to struggle. His was an authentic voice. If you hadn't already got it, this was the real him. I will fight for you, he promised. Unlike the Tories, whose only commitment is to fight each other. The audience was up on its feet long before the peroration, most of which got completely drowned out by the noise. Then Starmer's wife came on stage for the obligatory awkward photo call. Who would be the partner of a politician at these moments? They wandered off, only to be summoned back for an encore a couple of minutes later. Labour couldn't get enough of its leader. Where's the glitter ball when you need it? That was... The vibe was almost rock and roll, but Starmer's speech was serious business. By John Crace. Read by William Vanderpoy. And for more news and analysis from the Labour Conference, join John Harris for this week's Politics Weekly UK from Liverpool with Guardian political editor Pippa Carrera and columnist Polly Toynbee. Just search Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. Next, with an album featuring two dozen rock icons, Dolly Parton is hitting new highs. She discusses politics, business and why she has always worn and done exactly what she wants by Amina Sena read by Suan Braun You don't, I suspect, say no to Dolly Parton which is why the roll call of names on her new rock album is so ridiculous She sings Let It Be with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr with Mick Fleetwood on drums and Peter Frampton on guitar She has Debbie Harry and Stevie Nicks, Joan Jett, and Judas Priest's Rob Halford, and Elton John. It's not just the aging greats. Lizzo is there, too, on Stairway to Heaven. The album, Rockstar, Parton's 49th, started with her inauguration to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which she initially felt unworthy of because she didn't consider herself an artist in that genre. And so, at the age of 77... Parton became a rock star.
We meet in an expensive hotel in London, where Parton has taken over the top floor. It is busy with assistants, bodyguards, and publicists. Though when I'm shown into a room where Parton, queenly, is to receive me, everything timed to the second, we are left alone. Not remotely grand, she is warm and funny, skilled at deflecting awkward questions with a joke. She's also luminous, as sometimes very famous people are. But with her, it's something else. Later, I realize it's gratitude. Well, I've been grateful for every good thing that ever happened, she says. God has always blessed me, surrounded me with good people. I pray that every day God will bring all the right things, all the right people into my life. Recording these classic rock songs, the playlist is inspired largely by the favorites of Parton's husband of nearly 50 years, Carl, a real rock and roll freak, and has been a big deal for me. And I felt very responsible. I didn't want to maim them up, and I tried really hard to sing them well and stay as true as I could to the form, but with my voice. Her version of Leonard Skinner's Free Bird is, I think, even better than the original. Her roar of freedom, when you know the legend of her life story, the impoverished girl who grew up in the backwoods of Tennessee, defied all expectations, and grew up to be the all-conquering country star, is made for it. As well as the album, Parton is releasing a new book, Behind the Seams, My Life in Rhinestones, which documents her life and career in clothes and costume. Next, she is planning the small matter of launching a TV network. I've been at this so long, I've worn some of the most bizarre things. My hairdos have always been so out there, she says. At the time, you think you look good. Then you look back on it like, what was I thinking? She laughs, but the book is wonderful, documenting the dresses made from sacks she wore as a child and her coat of many colors sewn by her mother from fabric scraps to the most lavish stage costumes. Blonde hair that gets bigger and bigger, like a cake rising. Jumpsuits in every color, dresses weighed down with rhinestones and pearls. Parton has always been sure of her look, even when she was young. A look, as she has said before, modeled on the town tramp, a local woman who wore high heels and tight skirts, who Parton would look out for on trips into town. She was flamboyant. She had bright red lipstick, long red fingernails. She had high-heeled shoes, little floating plastic goldfish in the heels of them, short skirts, low-cut tops, and I just thought she was beautiful. When people would say, she ain't nothing but trash, I would always say, well, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. Her grandfather, a preacher, and father, a sharecropper, both hated the way she dressed. Her grandfather would even physically punish her. I was willing to pay for it, she says. I'm very sensitive. I didn't like being disciplined. It hurt my feelings so bad to be scolded or whipped or whatever. But sometimes there's just that part of you that's willing, if you want something bad enough, to go for it. She wrote a song years later, she says, The Sacrifice, on her 2011 album Better Day. And it kind of sums it up. It says, I was going to be rich no matter how much it cost and I was going to win no matter how much I lost. Down through the years, I've kept my eye on the prize, and you ask if it's worth the sacrifice. I think it is, for me.
she must have had real strength of character as a young woman to defy people, including later in her recording career when record label executives wanted her to tone down her look. Parton smiles. I've always been true to myself, she says. That was what my mom always used to say. To thine own self be true. I put a lot of stock in that. Everything I do, whether it's my personality, how I conduct myself in business or whatever, if I do it my way according to what I understand and believe, there's a strength in that. You can think, I can stand by this. I can live by this. She did care what people thought, she says. But I never cared so much that it keeps me from being me. For many years, Parton's look seemed like a joke, one she was in on, and it certainly made people underestimate her. Actually, she says, my look came from a very serious place. That's how I thought I looked best. Sometimes that's worked for me. Sometimes it can work against you. It took me probably years longer to be taken serious. But I wasn't willing to change it, and I figured if I had the talent, it'd show up sooner or later. The town tramp represented something else. When Parton looked around at the women she knew growing up in Tennessee, she saw hard work and drudgery, women worn down by years of child-rearing. Her mother had 12 children by the time she was 35. I did not want that for myself. My mom and my aunts, I grew up with women knowing how to be good mothers. But that was just not what I felt God had in mind for me. Because somebody's got to entertain those people, to write songs about them. I can write a song as if I had a house full of kids. I can write a song as if I've got a cheating husband, even though I never did. But I know what it's like. I've seen it, been around it. There's no thing in this world that's foreign to me that I don't get or understand. Music, she says, felt like a calling. But while she had her mother's creativity and spirituality, she says she also inherited her father's work ethic and business mind. I like to think that I got the best of my dad and my mom. It's kept me as a businesswoman knowing what I need to do, not just to get out and sing. The Parton Empire, worth more than $500 million, includes a theme park, Dollywood, and her contribution to the world has been immense. She estimates she has written 3,000 songs, of which about 1,000 have been recorded and released, some by other artists, and her philanthropy is world-famous. She has donated more than 100 million books to children through her literacy program, and in 2020, she contributed $1 million to kickstart the development of a COVID vaccine. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag 
a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Dolly Parton. Parton may have stopped touring, but her workload hasn't slowed. She writes songs, she says, all the time. And I've been writing since I was seven years old. I've always got something to write on. Chewing gum papers, napkins in a restaurant. I never know when an idea is going to hit me. And I do not like to lose them because usually they don't come back. I'm sure I've lost so many great ideas because I didn't have pen and paper. Is it true she wrote Jolene and I Will Always Love You in the same session? She can't remember if it was the same day, she says, but she recorded them on the same tape of Songs in Progress. I wrote them in that same period of time, she says. It can't have been easy to have been a young woman in the music industry in the 1960s and 70s. In meetings, she would often be dismissed, but she says she stood her ground. I would just say, I think I have something that we can all make some money off of and get over the fact that I'm a girl here because my mind is on something else. Having grown up surrounded by brothers and uncles, I always knew how to maneuver in a crowd of men. I never slept with anybody to get ahead because to me, it wouldn't be worth it. That don't usually work in the long haul either. She must have experienced harassment. Oh, I did. But I always knew how to put a man in his place without making him feel bad. If sometimes that don't work, I'm also strong as a boy. I know how to push you off and get the hell away from you. She had to fight men off? I have. But that goes back to being a country girl. And in her career? Both, she says. And that's a very uncomfortable situation. I was always able to get away before a serious assault would happen, but I feel sorry because some women are not able and some men are that aggressive. Parton has always refused to call herself a feminist, even though so many elements of her life point to it. Her self-determination, her understanding of women's lives, her 1968 song Just Because I'm a Woman is about double standards, her self-made millions, the 1980 film she starred in, 9 to 5, and the theme song she wrote for it, a political anthem for working women. I think words and titles just have such connotations, she says. When I think about a feminist, you think about women that are anti-man, and you think of women that have been so mistreated, they have to make some sort of statement. I'm all about women. I'm all about empowering women. But I'm all about empowering all people, love and respect, and uplifting them. Equal pay for equal work is something she can get on board with. Parton is nothing if not a talented businesswoman. If you do something great, you should be recognized and get paid for it. So if that makes me a feminist, yeah. Is Dolly Parton admitting to being a feminist? She laughs. That title just never seemed to fit right with me. 
Although there's not a feminist out there that don't say Dolly Parton does her job, a good example of what a strong woman can be. I'm all about living an example rather than preaching it. It's all part of Parton's famously apolitical stance. Why did she decide early on not to do politics? Because you're going to lose half your audience, she says. Even within my own family, especially the last few years since Trump and Biden, all that, it's like we can't even go to get a family dinner anymore. Especially if people are drinking, they get in a damn fight at the table. She is dismayed at how polarized politics has become. Don't get so trapped where if you're a Republican, you got to be this way. If you're a Democrat, you got to be that way. You're not allowed to think nothing else. Well, how crippling is that? I've got as many Democrats as I do Republicans as fans, and I'm not going to insult any of them because I care about all of them. I ain't that good a Christian to think that I'm so good that I can judge people. That's God's job, not mine. So as far as politics, I hate politics. Hate politics. Doesn't it become harder, though, not to take a stand? She does speak out when she feels she wants to, she points out. Her new album features a track called World on Fire, though it's a broadside at politicians in general, the world over. I try to say what I was thinking about all of it. Can't we rise above, some love, step up and make a change? She looks momentarily exasperated, but she's still smiling. Whether it be about the world being on fire with hate and greed and climate change or whatever, you're not even allowed to say you believe in certain things because you're just going to lose a whole bunch of people that are so set in their ways. They wouldn't believe it. Her refusal to get political is not, she insists, hypocritical. She has been criticized for making it as a business decision with an eye on the bottom line. It's just that I see both sides of everything. I think people can change their views on a lot of things if they would open their eyes wide enough or be willing to accept, well, maybe I'm wrong. But most people won't change their mind because it makes them look weak, and it's like they have to stick with it, and that's just stupid to me. At what point, as the podcast series Dolly Parton's America put it, does her silence become potentially harmful? What would it take for her to speak out on something? Take last year's ban on abortion in her home state, Tennessee. I do not speak to that, she says when I bring it up. I try to steer away from things that I know I don't need to be talking about. But I have my own views on everything. Of course I do. I can't imagine that anyone as compassionate as Parton or as feminist, she laughs at this, would support the ban. Well, I'm not saying. That's out of my league. I'm a singer. I'm an entertainer. Dolly Parton's America positioned her as the great unifier in a country as divided as the U.S. precisely because she hasn't laid down her opinions in public. She can be all things to all people. I don't know, she says. This is amazing to me how people look to me. That's a big responsibility. There ain't nobody that good. I'm not all that. I make a joke. I'm not even all there. She laughs. I try to just be a decent human being try to use love as my great tool and weapon. I try to leave my heart, my eyes, my ears open, and my mouth closed when I know it's not the right thing to be doing. Parton has the vantage point of age. I'm almost 78 years old. When you get older, you see everything, you've been through everything, 
and you can take a new spin on something that might not have been right for you 10, 15 years ago. She has no regrets, she says. My joke is that if I have any regrets, it's that I got caught with some of the stuff that I had no regret about. I don't know how true that is. Of course, she won't tell me, she says with a laugh. But I suspect Dolly Parton has always done what Dolly Parton wants. Whatever I do, she says, it feels like the thing to be doing at the time. That was Dolly Parton on Style, Stardom and Sexists. I Know How to Push Men Off and Get the Hell Away by Amina Sainer. Read by Sue Ann Braun. Behind the Seams by Dolly Parton is out on the 19th of October. To support The Guardian and The Observer, order your copy at guardianbookshop.com. Finally, since Rudy Zigadlo lost his hair, he wouldn't leave the house with his head uncovered. Then, he heard about the million transplant tourists who head to Istanbul every year. If it worked for them, could it work for him too? Read by William Vanderpoy. The breakfast spread at the Crown Plaza Hotel on the outskirts of Istanbul is vast. But I am advised to eat lightly. Everything is gleaming. The marble walls, the polished fruit, the cereal dispensers. The bloody wet crowns of the male guests, fresh from surgery. I sit at a table in the corner with a dollop of strained yoghurt and have a good ogle. At least half of the guests are post-op guys. Two are with partners who bear long-suffering looks. A group of three have the mid-treatment horseshoe bandage, and one guy is alone, examining his red scalp in selfie mode while he devours his smorgasbord. A woman pauses at the threshold of the restaurant, agape, and meets my eye. I smile apologetically by way of an explanation. For I, too, am part of this cult, the reborn, the second chances. I pat my breast pocket for the umpteenth time. Still there. The biggest wad I've ever carried. £4,800 withdrawn from a cash machine on a bleak December morning in East London three days earlier. I have not been seen in public without a hat for ten years, during which time... About five people outside my family have seen the top of my head. My hair started disappearing at 18. It was wispy by 28, and today at 34, it's a horseshoe. I have developed an extensive repertoire of smoke and mirror techniques to conceal it. I don't swim. I don't share bedrooms. I avoid strong winds, large fans, and head massages. Of course, Some hat-displacing risks you can't budget for. The beret-swiping stranger at a party, or the fedora-toppling hard-breaking taxi, which inflict the fatal wound of public exposure. Dating, to summarise. Anxiety, fumbles in the dark, awkward revelations. I wear a trucker cap to a fancy dinner with my partner's parents. For my day job, I work from home. And as a performing musician... I don an OTT wig and a drawn-on Groucho moustache. Why, though, is it so fatal that someone should see my head? Obviously, my world wouldn't end, but maybe it would. I like hair, 
and somehow, after a decade of follicle shame, I still have not reconciled myself to being bald. And so it goes, covering the top of my head, sustaining the half-baked illusion that I am as hirsute as my twenty-year-old self. Obviously, I've known about hair transplants for years. But I thought the window had long passed for me. I'm too far gone. I can't afford it. I have also avoided googling all things hair-related because I know how quickly one's algorithm turns into an obstacle course of triggering adverts. But six months ago, a good and fellow-afflicted friend encouraged me to have a WhatsApp consultation with an outfit in Istanbul that he visited for a third of the price of UK equivalents. I know Jamie has done boatloads of research. Unlike me, he has tackled the problem head-on and now flaunts a resplendent mop. I trust him. I have the consultation and assured my situation is salvageable, I get a quote and mull it over. It's now or never. Hiding is exhausting. Either embrace what I have or take a punt with the Turks. I book. That Istanbul is the Eurasian capital of cosmetic surgery is evident as soon as I set foot on the air bridge, where the first adverts I see are not for the Hajja Sophia, but for nose jobs, dental crowns and transplants. A combination of low labour costs and a very high number of doctors per capita has helped Turkey forge this industry, enticing one million hair transplant tourists in 2022. Amid the Byzantine treasures, there are bloody heads and nose bandages everywhere. I'm whisked to a luxe waterfront hotel, where a company rep briefs me on the next day's proceedings. The following morning, filled with first day of school dread, I am on my way to the hospital, clutching the wad. Paying cash is the cheapest option. The building has Trump energy. A hulking white cube with three Italianate porticos, crowned with a huge company crest. Gold giraffe sculptures stalk the front lawn. A man in a black turtleneck and box-fresh Alexander McQueen trainers shepherds me to the reception area. Another in the same uniform takes me to a room that is entirely empty but for a man and a cash-counting machine. I sign a contract. I'm too nervous to read. The sequence of events hereafter unfolds with a filmic sense of choreography. As a first-time customer of private healthcare, this smoothness is uncanny. I am seated on a barber's chair, and three immaculate turtlenecks stroke their chins and assess my head iPhones disconcertingly in hand. Are they doctors? Hairdressers? Actors? Pictures are taken. My head is shaved and a suggested hairline is drawn on my forehead. Shit, is this the hairline I want? Why haven't I considered this? Is it permanent? <laughs> Obviously. I wonder what was in that contract. Risks, probably. I shrug. Looks about right. Vaguely widow's peak. Natural enough. At this moment, a reverential hush descends as another, clearly more senior operator enters the room. I am told he is the company founder. He doesn't speak English, and that he will draw the final line. He silently wipes off the previous one, 
pinches my temple with some calipers and flashes a laser spirit level in my eyes. He strokes his chin and, with a deft flourish, redraws. Minutes later, I am in the theatre, inside a gown. A friendly English-speaking turtle asks what music I'd like to listen to as three doctors in scrubs lie me down, needle me in the arm and set up an IV for vital nutrients, an ECG and a blood pressure monitor. Goldberg Variations, I croak, played by Murray Pariah. I see the first drops of my own blood and feel faint. The anaesthetic will hurt a little, the turtle says. Fuck me, does it hurt. Fifty injections over the course of fifteen minutes, each prick sending a searing jolt through my cranium, with the sound, audible only to me, of turf being punctured by a spade. The anaesthetising is over. I am lying face down. The soundtrack has shifted algorithmically to some kind of whale song, but I cannot ask the doctors to change it because they are busy extracting follicles from the donor area around the sides and back of my head, where the grass still grows. This is thankfully painless, though it takes me a while to get used to the raking, gouging noises. For two hours, all I can see is two pairs of black crocs as the doctors harvest 4,800 follicles with a micro-punch tool and place them in a Petri dish. 4,800 follicles. That's a pound each. Finally, the actual transplant. Taking each extracted follicle and using jeweler's forceps, inserting it into a hole in the recipient area. For four hours, while my numb head is being seeded with the new crop, I am allowed to watch videos on the screen above the ECG monitor. I recourse to a comforting old favourite, Keith Floyd's Floyd on France, and feel relaxed enough to doze off. And that's it for the surgery. Eight hours under the knife. I am handed some meds and a travel pillow, told gravely not to touch the top of my head, and turtled back to the hotel. I feel pain, guilt and excitement. Later, when I confess to my mother what I have done, I will say, Mum, some people permanently stain their skin with ink. Some people apply makeup every day. Some people change their gender because they want to feel comfortable with the body they live in. I am merely moving a few follicles from the back of my head to the top. It's no biggie. I know, though, that however I frame it, I won't be able to justify the expense. I sleep for a single hour and dream of a wind blowing off my new grafts. The following day, I visit the clinic. The interior has a 60s space-age feel, with automatic sliding doors, Arne Jacobsen chairs and backlit motivational messages on the walls. My bandage is removed and a masked apron figure cleans away volcanic islands of blood which have erupted and dried in various spots overnight. Over a Turkish coffee, I am given detailed instructions on how to wash my hair for the next ten days. Daily disinfecting foam spray on the scalp, shampoo lather dabbed on and kitchen rolled off, and reminded to let nothing touch the top of my head. Then it's back to base camp for the last time, where I gorge on several meals while I take selfies with my free hand. The prospect of the flight back has been my biggest fear. 
Two airport securities, crowds, tight spaces. The flight is packed. I spot five other fretting transplantees. And, typical, I'm given an aisle seat. Noticing my flinching when people walk past or rummage in overhead bins, the passenger in the middle seat offers to switch. What an angel. I wonder whether the facial recognition at passport control will recognise me. Not only do I have a bloody head, but my face has swollen in various places. The turnstiles ping open, and I reach the arrivals lounge without being mocked or jostled. Now the waiting game. Scabs, weird shampoos, and months to go before I find out what the new landscape really is up there. Six months later, after several cycles of shedding and regrowth, I have a defined, fairly natural-looking hairline. The transplanted hair is pretty dense at the front, but becomes sparser towards the crown, where there is very little. Overall, though, the results are within the realm of expectation. I still wear a hat most of the time, but I do occasionally, gingerly, remove it, an act one friend has affectionately termed flashing. I'm less fearful of strong winds. I'm not a new person, but my confidence has grown, and that's worth something. The other day, I went to the shops. A 20-minute round trip on foot, involving direct interactions with both my neighbour and the cashier, as well as an assortment of passers-by. Without a hat. A thrilling concept, and probably my first fully unprotected outing since 2013. It felt euphoric. It felt good. That was I Have Not Been Seen in Public Without a Hat for 10 Years. Would a Turkish Hair Transplant Change My Life? By Rudy Zagadlo. Read by William Vanderpoy. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by William Vanderpoy and Sue Ann Braun and presented by me, Evelyn Miller. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.